Good morning, church family. My name is Sean. I serve here on the worship team and with Club 45 and Middle School Ministries. May you stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading today is from Daniel 5. King Balthazar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Balthazar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Continuing to verse 13. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirits of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Balthazar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see, hear, or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, 
tekel parson. Here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and, ha- and found wanting. Par- Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius, the Mede, took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Thank you, Sean, for reading that scripture for us, that long scripture for us. Um, It's so great to hear the stories um, of what's going on here at Lake Avenue Church and with the people here, um, not only from, from Paris, but in our local community as well. And I think it's that these stories are the things that, that bring us to understand who God is and how we move out in the world and how we hear God. And I know that this story as well is something that we can listen to and hear. So would you, as we enter in, pray with me. Spirit of the living God, you have given us this moment, this moment to hear what you're already doing in our midst. Stories of those who have gone and come back, the stories of those who have continued to be faithful to one cause, and this story of Daniel from a long time ago in a place that we may not understand, but you have the power to make it important in our lives today. So we pray in your mercy and grace that you would cause this story, these words to come off the page and alive in our experience like never before. For we pray it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So much has happened uh, in the life of Babylon between chapter 4 and chapter 5, right? Um, I hate it when we uh, listen to movies or you see the sequels in, uh, on the television or you read in books and you realize, oh my goodness, something has happened in between this story and the story I'm about to read. What happened? How can I engage it? What's going on here? And so um, let me see if I can catch you up real quick. So King Nebuchadnezzar turns uh, to Jesus, turn to, turns to God, and, and really receives what God is doing at the end of chapter 4. He receives who God is and makes some declarations about this most high God. And after Nebuchadnezzar's death, in Babylon's power um, begins to wane a bunch. And um, it really begins to decline in a way um, that's really significant in such a way that um, the throne changes hands multiple times in a very short period of time. We don't know all the people um, for whom the throne was given and kind of taken over, um, but we know that it was taken over multiple times uh, in a short period of time. Finally, it was secured by a noble um, by the name of Nabonidus. Um, And Nabonidus provides some stability for Babylon at the time. And it was a shaky stability. Um, And Nabonidus provides a stability that is is powerful and is strong. But he also um, resurrects some old religious ceremonies that are disconnected from Nebuchadnezzar's conclusions about the Most High God. Nabonidus um, marries a woman named 
Nitocris, I can't get this right, um, and she is possibly a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and Nabonidus decides uh, to kind of leave the city. Um, a lot of people think that he abandoned the city um, because of what was going to happen uh, because the Persians were coming. Um, but others think that he was out on a spiritual journey. Um, and either way, um, he leaves Belshazzar, his son, um, to rule over the city. And what we know from history is that Belshazzar rules for approximately two years. Now, King Belshazzar, we meet here in Daniel 5 at this very last moment, this very last night of the Babylonian Empire at, at this penultimate uh, moment. He throws a party um, instead of preparing, the, um, preparing to defend the city. He throws a party with a thousand of his noblemen uh, to honor the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and stone. Um, and he decides that uh, at some point in time, he doesn't have enough cups. And so he needs to go and get the golden goblets um, that the Jews are using for uh, their sacraments. Uh, he takes on this, um, this, this idea, this, this thought process of um, let's eat and drink and be merry um, for tomorrow we die. It's a, it's, a, it's a statement that we find throughout Scripture um, in Isaiah. We find it in Ezekiel, these moments where people say, you know what, forget about it. Um, life is coming to an end. We're just going to enjoy it. It's in this moment, at that particular moment, that God sends this hand to write into the wall uh, there in, 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 in his temple. Obviously, this is uh, a little disconcerting to Daniel uh, and disconcerting to those around, so much so that, um, not to Daniel, excuse me, to, ne uh, to Belshazzar. Daniel then makes a return um, after many years of being away, right? Um, we don't see the kind of in-between point, but we don't hear about Daniel's engagement with the king or with the king's people for many years. He shows up uh, into the presence of the king now um, to tell the king um, some not-so-good news. It's actually a place that he's familiar with. Uh, he's done this before. It's a position that he's been invited to um, because of his own reputation and the fact that he is still appointed the chief of magicians and enchanters and astrologers and diviners, although you wouldn't be able to tell that from Belshazzar's engagement with Daniel. Daniel decides then um, to reject the king's gifts um, and say, you know what, look, I, I don't want anything that you have to give me, but I will tell you what is the meaning of the things that are on uh, the wall. And he begins by saying, O king, the most high God set Nebuchadnezzar, your father, over all of this. The most high God. He begins that statement with understanding, uh, this understanding that all the gods that you're trying to serve, all the gods that you're trying to praise at this particular moment are subservient to the most high God. Remember this God that Nebuchadnezzar talked about. Remember this God that Nabonidus kind of didn't agree with. But this most high God is the one that we serve as Jews. It's the one that you and I serve as well. Daniel reminds Belshazzar about who Nebuchadnezzar was and how he interacted with the Most High God. And it's eventually because of some extreme circumstances in Nebuchadnezzar's life 
that he acknowledged that the Most High God was sovereign over all the kingdoms of men. And then we get to this statement. And Daniel says to Belshazzar, and you knew this. And you knew this. As I was reading through and, and preparing the sermon, this, these were the words for me that were like, oh man, and you knew this. What are the things for us in our lives that we know that we are stepping away from, that we walk away from, that God wants us to walk in? And you knew this. And even while knowing this, King Belshazzar sets himself up as an adversary to the Lord of heaven. He uses golden goblets taken from the Jewish temple. This is a picture taken from the Israeli Artifacts website of uh, a, a goblet that was taken from a second, uh, second century temple period. So something like this was being used. It's, bec it's precisely because of this act that God sends the hand to write the inscription. And over all the things that Belshazzar and Abinadus have done, why this particular act? Nebuchadnezzar um, would have acknowledged the, the God Most High, right? Um, but it wouldn't have been just some private acknowledgement, some prayer closet acknowledgement of God uh, saying, oh, thank you, God, for saving me and stopping me being an animal. That's not what was going on there. What we know is that Nebuchadnezzar um, must have had much more than a heartfelt hallelujah. Um, it was a thought that the Jewish cult was protected in some way and allowed to practice their own rituals without threat of defilement uh, or um, being usurped by any of the other gods. Nebuchadnezzar actually set this up in a, in a treatise that we can read other places, not just in the history book that we're reading right now. Nabonidus. Nabonidus, um, there's significant supportive documents, that, including the Dead Sea Scrolls, that suggest that Nabonidus did not hold on to those particular things and allowed people to continue to, to, to figure out what other gods that they wanted to serve. Suffice it to say that Belshazzar didn't hold on to the established position of, um, of Nebuchadnezzar. And while he's in this place, while he's in this, um, uh, this space that he's created with a thousand nobles, he realizes that he needs some more cups. And so he treated the golden goblets of the Jewish temple as red solo cups and brings them in. One of the commentators says, it was no drunken whim, but rather a deliberate act of sacrilege. A desperate final attempt to invoke the powers of pagan deities in defiance of the so-called God of heaven. So what happens? Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. Those words, the technical words are actually uh, statements of, um, of weight. They're, they're, they're weight statements. 
So they could have been taken in a lot of different places. I put this up on the, on the screen as a way to say, this is, these are words in Hebrew. Um, somebody wrote recently and painted on a wall um, that, that represent exactly what is in this scripture. So these words are not just being used thousands of years ago, but even today um, to say something to some king somewhere. Daniel delivers God's message of judgment to the king, who, after hearing these words, after reading and understanding these words, doesn't say, hey, wait a second, Daniel, um, can you tell me that again? I, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure what you said there, because uh, that didn't sound so great. Daniel's statement isn't one of saying, hey, um, what do I do to kind of make sure that this doesn't happen, because this sounds bad. Belshazzar turns and says, well, well, grab the purple robe and grab the gold chain and you're going to be third in line for the, for the throne here, buddy. It's an interesting response. And when we take that response and we juxtapose it to what Nebuchadnezzar's response is, we recognize the, the real hubris that, that Belshazzar has in standing there and understanding the judgment of God. As we know from the end of the story, Belshazzar was killed that evening, and the Babylonian Empire came crashing down, and King Darius entered the city 17 days later, and the rule of the Persians began. There are two things happening in this story that I think are important for us as Lake Avenue Church but also us as Christians to see in this story. And the first is that God's message and God's truth need to be communicated to those in power. Truth needs to be spoken to power. Even more, you and I have a responsibility as followers of Christ to do that. And there are three things that I think that um, are implications of this idea of truth to power. First, you and I have to become trustworthy voices in our worlds. Wherever you operate, however you engage in this world, you have to become a trustworthy voice in this world. You have to be a person for whom people come to and say, you know what, if I'm going to ask this person question, number one, they're going to give me the truth. And number two, it's going to point to something that's going to be life-giving, right? We've got to become those people in the world. And I've said it before in other places, until we as Christians have a corner on the market of loving people, then we're going to miss a lot of those opportunities to speak truth into the world. We have to become trustworthy voices. Daniel had proven himself over and over again in thought and word and deed. And everyone here could actually speak something you could say something to a lot of people right now. You could grab that little computer that's in your pocket or in your pocketbook and you could tweet out or Facebook out or do whatever you do on social media. You could say something. But what you say and how you say it and the consistency of your words are the things that are going to be important even more. It's your connectedness and representation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus that is going to continue to con make you a trustworthy voice. Second, 
We need to be prepared for opportunities to be God's messenger. We've got to be preparing ourselves always to speak God's message in whatever places we are. Daniel was invited into the presence of the king. And he was ready, after years of being sidelined, as it were, to not have to be ready, to not have to speak truth to power, Daniel had continued to be connected to God. And because of that, he was invited and he was ready. Clearly, sometimes you and I will not receive an invitation to speak truth to power. Now, let me clarify that. Most times, you will not be invited to speak truth to power. But the two things that, that are our preparation are, number one, that we would understand truth, and number two, that we would understand it in conjunction with love. If we don't do those two things that no other message that we send out is going to be received. Daniel loved God, and that was clear. His devotion to God was unwavering, but he also cared for the kings that he served, and that was clear as well, in order to speak truth in a way that was covered in love, and we have to do the same. Third, you are not important, God's message is. I say that even as a person who stands here and delivers a message, I am not the important thing up here. God's message is. Daniel rejects the promotion and the position of the king for the sake of a difficult message that could have gotten him killed. He had been in that position before with Nebuchadnezzar. And he steps into a place where a king who's acting absolutely erratically probably should have and would have in any other circumstance just lopped off his head. But Daniel speaks a message. Not his personal feelings about the king. Not his personal feelings about what was going on with the goblets. He speaks God's message and God's message alone to that king. And if you and I are called to speak truth to power, if you and I are called to speak any message in any powerful place, we need to speak God's message, that message, no more, no less. Not our opinions, not our thoughts, not our conjectures about what we think God's message should be in a particular place, but God's message in that place right then. The second thought that we've had about this particular passage is that of, and I think this is more important than even the first, of power hearing truth. People with power need to respect and respond to God's message. When powerful people or systems refuse to hear the truth and respond accordingly by pushing things away, at the very least, they put themselves in jeopardy. At the worst, catastrophe can happen. The photo on the screen is a photo of the crew of the space shuttle Challenger. That disaster did not need to happen and may have been averted if those in power had listened to the truth of their data and to the people that were raising concerns about what was going on that day. That day is burned into my mind because I remember it was the only day that whole entire year that I was homesick. 
And I had turned on the television because I knew everybody was watching and I loved the space shuttle. I loved what was gonna happen. I loved that there was a teacher. I loved the visual of the people that were up there. And I remember that disaster. I remember what happened. And as we've learned over the years of how that came about, we know that NASA had some decisions to make. And because of the systems in place, because of the pressure that was going on, the decision was made to go as opposed to stay. And people died. And it wasn't just the people that were affected. It was their families. It was the people that made the decisions to go that were affected. There are people in this congregation who were affected by that decision. I heard some great stories after the first service about people who are working on that project or those close to that project. If you are in any position of power, you have to be listening for truth. You have to be listening for God's message to you. And if you're breathing and you're in this place, then you are in a position of power somewhere in your life. This is true if you're a CEO, if you're a lawyer or politician, if you're a PTA president or you're just on the board, if you're a boss, if you're in the service industry, if you're a pastor, a teacher, a parent, if you're in a relationship, pretty much every situation we need to be listening for God's leading we need to listen to the past as well as the present so that we know how to work in this world we have the ability to hear truth and when we hear that truth we have two responses one to agree with it and walk in it or two to disagree with it. And some of you might go, well, I could just sit back and wait to see. Ah, no, 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 no. See, if you just sit back and wait to see, that just is effectively disagreeing, so you really only have two choices. When we stand against God's message, when we disagree with God's message, we stand in opposition to what God wants to do in us. We, we can only assume that along the way, Belshazzar had heard the stories of his grandfather and knew what he went through and knew what were the implications of him following the Most High God. We can assume that he knew that there was a reason that they never used the goblets taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar used to talk about it. Matter of fact, it was written in that big treatise that he and the kings and the nobles would have known as well. So the thousand people that were there didn't share that truth with him. But in this dark hour, when the city was about to be under siege and they knew it, they knew it from months before, that somehow, some way, that someone was coming, they decide to forsake it and show their ignorance toward and contempt for the God of the Jews. Belshazzar was not calm, he was fearful. He was not connected to God, he was divorced from God. Church, in moments of calm, in moments of connectedness to Jesus, I believe as followers, we would choose what God wants for us. However, we're not always calm. 
we're not always connected to what God wants for us. And when you and I are not connected to Jesus, it is desperately difficult to hear the voice of Christ or the leading of the Holy Spirit. I was sitting with this one for a minute because I was, I was thinking about what does it really look like in our lives? And it took me a moment to get to those places of hubris where I, I pushed against what God was doing in my world. I remembered back to a moment in high school where I had been going to youth group and, you know, kind of had this, you know, you go to youth camp and then you come back from camp and you're hanging out with your friends and you go back to camp. It's great moments. And as I look back, there's moments of that. And there was, a, there was a girl that I had been friends with over that time. And we were great friends at camp, <laughs> but not anywhere else. Uh, matter of fact, there are many moments where I, I got ignored um, in her presence um, while we weren't in those spaces. And, um, and I remember getting to summer camp, uh, I think probably my junior year, sophomore year, I don't remember, and thinking, I'm, I'm kind of done with all of this madness, and so I don't really want to talk to you anymore. And yes, I made the girl cry. And we know from like camp experiences that that went back to the cabin and, you know, it caused a bunch of drama. I had to get talked to by the girl counselor and she sat me down and was like, you've got to reconcile with Alexandra. This is going to be great. Alexandra's not her name. <laughs> There's not a happy ending to this story, y'all. I did not reconcile. I just said, I'm over it. Done. I don't want to deal with this. So no. When I look back at that moment, I realize that God was calling me to do such a thing. To reconcile, to be friends, to do what God has called us to do. Love God and love others. That's what God has called us to do. But I decided, no. Alexandra went on with her life. I went on with mine. I still know who she is, but we don't have a relationship. We haven't spoken in years. Luckily, there were other people in her life to speak Jesus into her world, and she's a follower. But I look back at it as a huge failure on my part to not follow what God had given me, even in the simplicity of following the Lord. You know, the other response that we can have is that we can agree with God's message. We can agree with God's truth to us. And if we agree, we're usually called to two things. Either we must repent or we must come into alignment with the movement of what God's doing in our lives to something new that God is showing us. When God's message comes to us um, and we are urged to repent, then we've got to stop. We've got to stop that which we're doing that is outside of God's word and turn to God and listen to what God wants to do in order to restore us to that relationship and to that movement that God wants us to be a part of. When we hear the voice of God, when we hear the good shepherd, when we hear the spirit of grace in our lives, we know that God cares for us. 
We hear that in, in Scripture out of 1 Peter uh, 5. It says, cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. It's because of that care that we can turn to the loving God when we have been out of God's will and return. God may be calling you to something new in your life. It could be one of any multiple things. It could be a new relationship. It could be a new job. It could be a new ministry. It could be just something that you're not really wanting to do. It may be scary. But remember who called you. It may not make sense to you, but you know who is the one who is calling you. It may require you to step out in faith with God, but remember who is the author and perfecter of your faith. Here is what is at issue, church. If we do not seek and constantly seek out the truth in our lives, if we don't seek out good news for our own selves, if we do not seek out God's message for us and allow it to have access to us and allow it to affect us, we will be more likely to hold on to hubris over humility and contempt over contrition. Contempt for God's message, contempt for God's mission, contempt for God's church, big C. We'll continue to give reasons why we won't engage, why we pass judgment on leaders and churches, why we aren't loving, why we aren't forgiving, and at worst, we withhold relationship from other people. Only humility, only contrition, only brokenness of our heart as a gift to the living God allows the space for God to work in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. Contempt, it leads to resistance and uh, defensiveness, to anger, to pride, to separation. Contrition will lead to, to mercy, to forgiveness, to grace, to reconciliation and to love. It is this attitude that we must walk with, whether we speak truth to power or we hear power. We hear that power from a powerful place in our world. So here's an exercise that I did to help me get there because it took a minute. And I want you to grab a piece of paper. I know there's a couple in front of you if you have a little thing to write on. Grab a piece of paper and put a line straight down the center of that paper. And at the top on one side, I want you to write the word humility. And at the top on the other side, I want you to write the word hubris, H-U-B-R-I-S, or pride, if that's easier. I'm going to invite Jeremy back up because I want to give you a moment to engage this practice, right? How do we practice these things? How do we become aware of what God is doing in us? And might as well do it now before you get off to lunch and all the rest of the stuff you've got to do today. On the side with humility, I want you to capture moments in your life where you are connected to God and you have responded in humility. It can be a word or a sentence or a picture. It doesn't matter. On the side with hubris, I want you to capture moments in your life where you are disconnected from God. 
and you responded in hubris or pride. Once again, it can be a word or a sentence or a picture. If you need a picture, I have a slide for you that you can just look at, help you in your own mind's eye deal with it. Folks, this is the process of our faith. Ready, go. Go. 